because it's been a couple weeks, I want to just remind us, kind of get us up to speed of where we've been on our study on the life of David. First of all, you remember we've talked about how we, we've got to make sure that we situate David where he was historically and where he was biblically. That is to say, we cannot impose our 21st century Christian uh, worldview on David because he was not a 21st century Christian. He was an old covenant Jew uh, back in, in, in history. He was not a Christian. So uh, uh, if you begin to try to, to put, put uh, Christian 21st century Christian values on him, you're going to get very confused because uh, 21st, Christian, 21st century Christian values tell you you should, have, you should be the husband of one wife. Well, that was not David. And it's going, to be, it's going to create some issues and some problems. Uh, so we have to understand him uh, culturally, but also we, we need to remember where he was historically. He came uh, about at the end of the Bronze Age, and about a thousand years before Jesus was born. You remember he was, he was four generations removed from the fall of Jericho. And he's only five generations removed from the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. So Five generations before David, all the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. And now just five generations later under Saul's leadership, they're, they're trying to carve out this nation. And because there's really no nation at this point in time. And if, if you think there is, you'll, under, you'll misunderstand First and Second Samuel. Because th these books really tell us the story of the, of the, uh, of the birth of the nation of Israel in a, in a sense. Because there's no real nation. The tribes are just scattered from, from there's the old saying from Dan to Beersheba and they're literally just scattered all over the place and, and there's no central government. They're living in and amongst pagan people. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, the Wild West, the American frontier. You, you, you have the Amalekites. They're, they're, they're sort of like the Apaches. They like to raid up and down the desert in the south and they're wild. They're the most depraved people living in the area. And then you've got the Philistines who, who uh, uh, their capital is at the city of Gath, and they're a lot more organized nation uh, than the Amalekites. To the east, you've got the Edomites with their capital at Petra, and then to the northeast, you've got the Ammonites. And, and then you have these Hebrew tribes that they just can't seem to get organized because they're fighting amongst each other, and there's, there's no national government, there's no monarchy, there's no constitution, there's no system of law except for the law of Moses. And, and then up out of this... In the middle of this situation, all of this chaos, the Israelites begin to demand a king. And, and listen, I think we need to cut the Israelites a little bit of slack for asking for a king. I've heard a lot of preachers just, just blast the Hebrew people for wanting a king. But I'll say this to you. I, I think what they're saying to themselves is, look, we got to get organized here. You know, we're, we're, we need somebody to help us to work together because we're supposed to be this nation of Israel and everybody's doing their own thing and all the tribes are doing their own thing. We need some help. And they really struggled this way. And it, it just wasn't happening under the system of the, of the judges. And it just wasn't working. And Samuel, you'll remember, he was the last of the judges, but he was also a prophet. And he anoints Saul as king. And then Saul becomes king and he does some things right. Uh, and you remember we said that Saul's home base was at Gibeah which was the tribal capital of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe he was from. 
And Gibeah shows up badly in the book of Judges. It was in Gibeah where these men are, are going to commit a homosexual gang rape and it doesn't happen. Instead, they take a man's concubine and literally rape her to death. And it's this horrible story that happens near the end of Judges and, and, and that happens in the city of Gibeah. So, so when Saul becomes king, uh, remember he was a child during that time period. So it's, those events are, very, are just you know, emblazoned on his mind. And when he becomes king, one of the first things he does is he, he makes both sodomy and witchcraft illegal. And, he, and then he lives and he pushes everything right to the edge and begins to reign in wickedness. And, but in the middle of that, he, he begins to forge a nation out of these tribes. He forms an army uh, that includes members of all tribes. Because before, if tribes fought together... They, they had the army from this tribe that was working, that was fighting together, and the army from this tribe, and the army from this tribe, and they were not intermingled. But now Saul began to take valiant men and brave men from all the different tribes, and, and they began to fight side by side. So instead of the army of Arkansas coming and working with the army of Missouri and working with the army of Oklahoma against the, the threat, now it was the army of the United States. It was the army of Israel. It was the national army because they were all intermingled in, in there with it. So he, would, he did some good things. Uh, he, he's not a completely evil person. He was a person with great inner conflict, and he was a person that had some strongholds that he never dealt with, and that finally destroyed him. And it's at that point where he begins to fade from God, and Samuel announces that God has withdrawn his anointing from Saul, and Samuel leaves Gilgal where he confronted Saul, and he goes to Bethlehem, and, 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 and you remember this is not the first time scripture, in Scripture that Bethlehem has showed up, or uh, Bethlehem is where the book of Ruth takes place. And, and, and the book of Ruth is the story of David's great-grandmother. And Samuel goes to Bethlehem and selects this very young man, very, really a child, and the youngest of seven sons of Jesse, who was a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. And he anoints this young shepherd boy with oil and announces to everyone that was assembled there that this little boy is going to be the next king. And that's great, isn't it? Except you got a problem. And the problem's name is Saul. Because Saul's already king. And Saul's not going anywhere. And Saul desperately wants to keep his power. Saul's not going to just say, oh, you've anointed David king? Well, let me just step aside and let him have it. He doesn't want to do that. And, and, and he's not going anywhere. He's still king. So you have Saul, who is this sort of this upfront king. And then you have David who has been anointed by God to be king, so he's sort of this shadow king behind the scenes, this little boy that's been anointed by God. And then you read the story and you ask yourself, how is God, God going to make that happen? See, one of the difficulties for us, when we read it, we've heard these stories, we've read them so much that we know the outcome. And we forget that the people in the story did not know the outcome. And, 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 and so you read the story, and if you put yourself in that position, you're, you'd be asking yourself, how is God going to make this happen? And the first time that God moves David into Saul's camp was when Saul just can't sleep. And he's being tormented by evil spirits, and, and he's having these demonic nightmares. And one of the leaders in his camp says, you know what, I know, I know a boy who might be able to help. And he plays the lyre, and he can sing like a, sing like a bird. Let's just bring him here and see if, if, he, if he can help. And so Saul... 
he goes in and begins to sing to Saul. Saul gets better, goes off to war, and they send David back home to Bethlehem. And David, you remember, he had to wait for God to fulfill his promise. He didn't try to force the door open or make anything happen. Boy, that's what we tend to do. We say, God told me to do this, so I'm going to do it now. And we forget that sometimes God says, yes, I want you to do it, but I want you to do it when I say to do it. And so David has to wait. He, and that's a hard lesson for us to learn, to wait, especially in America, in our microwave society. You know, everything's, everything's fast. And that's kind of where we left off two weeks ago. And today, I want to deal with two people, two people that entered into David's life and had a big impact early on that really helped set the course for where he was going and what was going to take place. The first one you've already heard of, his name is Saul. The entire first section of David's life is, is really all about his conflict with King Saul. Now remember this, David, uh, 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 David personally and professionally loves and is loyal to Saul. Okay, in modern vocabulary, and, uh, and I hope this is not offensive to anybody, but uh, when we look at it with our human sensibilities and modern vocabulary, that makes David seem like a sucker. You know, I mean, he loves Saul, and Saul hates David. He's loyal to Saul, but Saul is unworthy. He won't defend himself against Saul, and Saul's trying to kill him. And, and, and really, this is one of the great strengths of David's life. I'm, I'm 100% convinced that if David had lifted up his hand against Saul, if he had killed Saul, then later on we're going to see that he had ample opportunities to do so. But if he had lifted up his hand against Saul, I'm completely convinced that David, who became the greatest king in the history of Israel, would have been replaced just as Saul was replaced. God would find somebody else. David sinned now. Don't misunderstand. David did these things right, but David sinned, uh, and we're going to come to that eventually. He lived a big life, and you know what? When David sinned, he did it up big. You know, he, he didn't do little small things. It was not petty, and we'll get to that. He did it up royally. But David's great strength of character was rooted in his loyalty, loyalty to the people of God and loyalty to the God of the people. David was a man of God, and he, he believed that God loved the Hebrew people, and he was loyal to God. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean he never sinned, because he did, but he was loyal to God and loyal to the people of God. And he, and he said, I will not stretch out my hand against the anointed of God. Now, i got to tell you, that, that verse has been misused and abused by, and wrongfully claimed in order for preachers to get away with all kinds of things, say, don't touch not my anointed, well, you know, that has nothing to do with, with that, but, but that's not what I'm talking about here. And, and see, because one of the things we learn is there will probably come a time, and maybe already has had a moment in your life, there will probably be a situation where you will have the opportunity to damage a leader, whether it's your pastor or a boss or some other leader. There will be a situation where you can see that this person is unworthy. Okay? I mean, let's think, put it in the context of the church. Let's think about this. The church is full of people. And people are full of sin. I've said before to, to people, 
I said, listen, if, if, you, if you ever find the perfect church, by all means do not join it because you'll ruin it. Because there's no such thing. Isn't that the truth? You know, we, we talk about, you know, I hear people say, oh, there's sin in the church. Well, of course there's sin in the church. Because there's people in the church. You know, uh, but, but uh, the church is full of men. And men are full of sin. And you, but you would do better, though, to be loyal to an unworthy person than to lift up your hand against the one whom God has put in place. If, if, if a pastor or a boss or other leader is wrong or wicked... You know, here's the question. If you, if you have a leader, whether it's a boss or a pastor or whoever it might be, and, and you believe that they're wrong, you believe that they're, that, they're, that they're wicked or whatever it might be, I want to ask you one simple question. Ready? Can God deal with it? Can God deal with it? Can God expose him? Can God remove him? Then whenever possible, let God deal with it. You, you say, wait a minute, what, it, what if it's a legal issue? Listen to me. Here's the thing. This is what we forget. You always have the right to leave. Right? You always, David left. That's what he did. He didn't stick around and say, no, no, I, I'm going to stay here. This is where I need to be, and I'm going to fight Saul. No, he said, you know what, I, I'm going I'm to make sure that I don't, I don't lay my hand on the man that God has put in place in this position right now. And, and since I can't coexist with him in this situation, it's not my job to depose him. That's God's job. My job is I'm going to get out of the way so that, for, number one, so I'm not tempted to do this. And number two, I, I mean, I just, I just got to leave. You, here's the thing. You, you don't have to sit there. When you've got a leader, whether it's a boss or someone else, who, you know, is just out. How many of you have ever had a boss that for some reason just did not like you? Anybody haven't? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody, but sometimes you just get that and you just don't understand it. You, you do not have to sit there and, and, and let someone put a javelin through your throat. That's not loyalty. That's, that's stupidity. Okay? Uh, you, you always have the right to leave. But here's the thing, and this is, this is what we struggle with in America because in America... We're all about our rights, right? We, we love our rights. We forget, though, that in New Testament Christianity, when I surrendered my life to Jesus, I have no rights. They all belong to him. I have surrendered everything to him. I have no rights uh, uh, in a re very real sense. So here's where, what we have to remember, and this is the part we struggle with. I don't have to sit there and let, and let him throw a javelin through me. David didn't have to stay there in Saul's court and let him throw spears at him. But you don't have the right to pull the javelin out of the wall and throw it back. All right, let's move on. Because this is the one I'm excited about getting to. This is the one that most famous part probably of David's life. Because the second person whom David encounters in his life, both of these, by the way, turned out to be enemies of David, is Goliath. And here's the problem. When you start talking about and teaching about David and Goliath, it has been so, for lack of a better phrase, it has been so Bible storyized. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know. I mean, I hope that communicates it. 
but it, it's, it's been so Bible storyized that it's hard for us to even, even grasp it. It's almost like a nursery rhyme story uh, because we have told it so often, uh, you know, in, in children's stories and, you know, in children's church and in Sunday school, and we should tell them. Uh, <clears throat> however, it's funny because we have turned some of these Old Testament stories into children's stories, and they really, truthfully, are not suitable for children. You know, we don't, we don't like to, you know, we don't like to, to talk about the part at the end where David cuts his head off, you know, or, or my favorite, my favorite is, is uh, Noah and the Ark. I mean, we, we like decorate nurseries and Noah and the Ark and, and all this stuff. And I just picture in my mind, you know, if we were really honest with our kids, you know, we'd be like looking around the room and say, well, sweetheart, this is where God killed everybody on earth. <laughs> Sleep tight. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's really not a kid's story. But it's hard for us to look at it sometimes seriously because we tend to think of it as a kid's story. So I, I want us to kind of get behind the story of David and Goliath and, and think about it a little bit. David now, he, he's not a little, little boy. He's grown up a little bit more. He's probably an adolescent by this time. But he's still too young to serve in the army. And his elder brothers... They've gone down to the camp of Saul, but David has stayed home. So he's, I don't know, probably maybe 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. He's still a youth, really, really just a boy. Because remember, you know, to a seasoned old veteran in the army, some, some guy in his 30s that's been in the army for 15, you know, uh, years or whatever, to that man, a 15-year-old boy, it's a 15-year-old adolescent, looks like a boy. And, and so, I mean, he's slender. He hasn't received his muscles, uh, the muscles of adulthood yet. He's just a skinny adolescent boy. I want you to picture this in your mind. And his father sends him down to the army encampment with bread and cheese for his brothers and some presents for his brother's officers because what's happening is, remember, Saul has been rising up against the Philistines because they've kept Israel under, under their thumb and they've oppressed them and they've They've got iron and they're keeping iron away from the Israelites. They don't want them to be able to forge iron weapons because right now they got the upper hand technologically. And so Saul has formed this army and he's basically rebelling against the Philistines and saying, we're not going to be your, your slaves any longer. You're not going to terrorize us anymore. And so Saul and his army are down there and they're facing off with the Philistine army. And David's father sends him down with some bread and cheese for his brothers, some other presents for his brother's officers. And he's gets, he gets there. And what's, what takes place, there's this practice among ancient armies, and it, it almost never worked, but they had this custom. Ancient armies had a custom where someone would come out as the champion of one army, and they would challenge the opposing army to send out their champion. Now think about this. You know, um, warfare is always ugly. But when your warfare is hand-to-hand -hand with swords and spears, it's particularly brutal. So even when you win the war, you have veterans that come back with arms chopped off and legs chopped off and, you know, just mutilated. And these are not professional soldiers. They're not paid like they are. These are the farmers of your nation. These are the people that run the economy of your nation through the agriculture. And now they come back and they can't do that. So it makes sense to try to avoid that if at all possible. So they came up with this where they would have one champion, you know, challenge the other champion. 
And the concept was that these two people would fight and then whoever won, his army would be the winner and their foes would lay their arms down and surrender. Now the problem, the idea was good, but the problem was that it almost never worked because you got a lot of testosterone filled men there. And we all know how that's going to go when, when one guy wins and they say, okay, lay down your weapons. Yeah, I'll lay it down. <laughs> I'll show you something right now. And so you, they always ended up fighting anyway. But it, so it eventually kind of evolved into more like army entertainment. It was like the gladiator fight before the real war kind of thing. And, and it, it didn't stop the war, but the war was going to happen anyway. So Goliath comes out. And when we talk about Goliath, you know, we talk about giants. We, in today's world, you talk about a giant, you tend to think of like Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, this mythological thing. But what giant means here is just simply that Goliath was a, was a huge human being. Okay? He's more than nine feet tall. And you say, oh, that's just so hard to believe. Well, is it really? I mean, we have people in the NBA that are, that are not that much shorter than that. And, and, and we're not talking about something outrageous. You know, the, the Bible didn't claim he was 30 or 40 feet tall. And, and, the, and so here's this giant man, this huge man. And the head of his spear alone would have weighed uh, about what a modern bowling ball weighs. That's on the end of his spear that he's holding. I mean, this is a big, powerful man. And... and uh, there's, there is the implication in this text that, his, that this family, because he had brothers, and they were all giant. They were all huge. He had, he had four or five brothers. And, but it, there's the implication that they were more than just physically abnormal, but they were even demonically inspired. And they were Philistines. They lived in Gath. There's a, there's a family of them with these brothers of monstrous size. And Goliath, he came out day after day after day and tossed the Hebrew army. Sometimes we forget that when David show up, showed up, that wasn't like all of a sudden they're like, hey, who is this guy? Because Goliath had been doing this for 40 days, morning and evening, twice a day for 40 days, for almost a month and a half. Goliath is coming out to, to the people of Israel to, the, to challenge the army of the Israelites. And he's saying, why won't you send anybody out to fight me? He's literally mark, mocking the Israelites. And David in the story, you know, he gets there and... And uh, he, 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 it, he, it looks odd to us because of his innocence, his naivete. But, you know, innocence and naivete to those who are cynical and hard-hearted hard kind of look showy and false. And we'll see that in a minute. But it, if it's genuine, it's just precious. So here's this giant standing there and he says, send out a champion. Send out a champion. Let him fight me. You think you can take me? So David is looking up and down. He's standing there hearing this. And he's looking up and down these soldiers. He doesn't know that this has been going on for 40 days. And he sees them. These are big guys here with armor and with weapons. And David is looking because he's expecting, he's expecting somebody's going to respond. I mean, he's, he's, who's going to kill this guy? Who's it going to be? I can't wait to see. This is going to be great. Which one of you going? Which one of you guys is going? And then all of a sudden the soldiers are like, uh, you know what, it's actually lunchtime. Uh, you, know, you know, the other one's, the other one's like, you know, it's, uh, I, I slept funny, my neck is a little stiff, so it's not me. Oh, I hurt my ankle. You know, and all of a sudden they're all, they're all running away. No, nobody's going to fight this guy. So David says, well, if I kill him, what will I get? 
And the soldiers begin telling him all the things that the king will do for the one that kills Goliath. I mean, he's going to be made wealthy. There's no doubt about that. He's going to get to marry the king's daughter, which later we'll find out may not have been the greatest uh, blessing in the world. But here's, here's a good one. Ready for this one? His family is going to be tax-exempt forever. How many of you say, oh, Lord, bless me with that one? <laughs> All of a sudden, David's brother shows up, his oldest brother. He's in the army. That's why David's there in the first place. And Eliab, David's oldest brother, he's just furious. You remember uh, when we talked about that maddening little brother? Here's Eliab. He's joined the army. He's a great man. He's a big guy. And somebody comes up to him and says, hey, there's a, there's a kid down there that says he's going to kill Goliath. And Eliab's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he walks over there and he realizes, that's my little brother. And he just laces into him. He says, I know your wicked heart. Which, by the way, very often people will make accusations of someone else for the very issues that they're dealing with themselves. The one with a wicked heart here was not David, it was Eliab. David simply says, and I love this response to him, to him and to anybody who listening. He said, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Is there no reason? Do you feel like there's, there's, there's not a reason to get up and do something here? Is there not a cause? And I'm going to tell you something. The, the person that simply does what is right in innocence of heart will look manipulative and scheming and showy and self-centered to those who are cynical. See, because he was mean, he meant that from the purity of his heart, but they're looking at him and they're thinking, he's just saying that because he knows he can't do anything. He's not about to go fight Goliath. He's just saying that so he looks all uppity. And, and I mean, you, you can see it in, in your life. You see it? I mean, you're in a group of people that are about to do something they're not supposed to do, and everybody else is saying, come on, let's go, let's do it. Yeah, it'll be great. And then you say, this is wrong, I'm not going. I promise you that everybody in the car will agree that you are a showy, self-centered, egotistical jerk. Everybody in the car would say, oh, they're just, they're just trying to be all, you know, all that in a bag of chips. The problem is, the reason they're upset, honestly, is that you have announced the elephant in the room that this is wrong. Oh, you, you know. And that's, that's the moment. Eliab is fuming. Why? He's fuming because he's a gutless coward that's not about to go out there himself. And he's not about to believe that that the younger brother whom he already resents for being anointed king in, uh, in his, when he felt like he was due that, that right, that, 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 that he's not about to admit that maybe he has more courage than he's going to do something that should be done when he hasn't done it. David's there saying, hey, I mean, you remember when I killed that lion? You remember when I killed that bear? If I can kill a lion and a bear, then this uncircumcised Philistine doesn't stand a chance. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to have the king's daughter as my wife. And Eliab is incensed. He's furious. You know, I try to get myself into the mind of David at this moment, and I want to say this to you. I, I feel like there are two different kinds of courage. There is a kind of courage which is the reason courage under fire. So that's the guy. You hear these stories about the guy that, 
that uh, is in the foxhole and he jumps out of the uh, foxhole and runs at the machine gun because their friends are getting killed by the machine gun, you know? And so he knows that in that moment, in his reason, he knows that he's risking his life. He's scared to death. He's soaked in sweat, but he does it because it's right. But there's another kind of courage. And it's the secondary courage that I see in David at this moment. And that is the courage that is born out of, of the gift of faith. It's that calm, quiet confidence that God is going to do this. Now, in my judgment, this may surprise you, but the reason courage, uh, uh, when you're terrified, I think that is the greater courage. When you're frightened and you, and you act courageously, that's a greater moral value than when, you're, uh, than when you're brave but not frightened at all. And I don't believe in this story, I don't believe David is frightened at all. There's no indication that David, uh, you know, looked at the situation and said, I don't know, but somebody's got to do it. God, I, I think I might die, but I'll do it if you want me to. That's not the sense you get from this. David, he just had, had this gift of faith in this moment that he just said, listen, God killed a lion and a bear through me. If God could do that, then God is going to do this. And there was just this quiet confidence. I believe he has a word from God in that moment. I think he's operating in, in the realm of faith. And I think David says, God killed that lion. I didn't. God killed that bear. I didn't. So if God wants to kill this Philistine, he's going to do it. And if I happen to be there, the one that, that, that he's using, then it's going to happen. He said, I, I just picture him saying, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And every other Israelite soldier was saying to himself, they're looking at Goliath. They're, they're all saying, this guy is too big to be beat. And David is looking at him and saying, this guy is too big to miss. He's like, he's a great target. He's as big as a barn. I can't miss him. So David goes out there. I'm cutting through. I'm not going to go through the part where he went to see Saul. But, you know, he goes there and Saul starts to put the armor on him. And that's a whole different lesson maybe for another time about learning to be yourself and not trying to be like somebody else. When God calls you to, to do something, he wants you to be who you are and use the gifts and abilities that you have. He doesn't expect you to be somebody else. But so David, you know, he finally gets out on the battlefield. And, and, and David, he, he, it's funny because... Um, David goes out there and he begins to taunt Goliath. He mocks him. He, he's, he's, here's the, remember, he's a skinny little kid, little teenage kid. How many of you have, you've got, you've got a seventh, seventh grader and he's, he's a skinny kid. I used to be skinny and I'm not fibbing. I know some of you are saying, yeah, right, <laughs> but it's the truth. Uh, but but he, he's coming out of this giant you know, over nine foot tall, massive human being. And he's coming at him and he's mocking him. He's saying, come at me, big man. Come on. I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds. He's saying this. And he, he's mocking him. Why? Why? You see, I, I think even early on in this, you begin to see the gift that God has put in him, this military genius that David had because, because the giant has an armor bearer, a shield bearer, and he's carrying a shield in front of Goliath that is, that is the height of the, of the, of the uh, soldier, 
And, and it's so big that one man in the army, army is hired just to carry the shield. And all the giant has to do is stand behind that shield and not a single rock will ever get to him. So David has got to get him for, out from behind that shield. So the giant, he, he's there and he's, you know, David's yelling at him saying, Hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to feed your flesh to the birds of the air today. This is, this is your last day on earth, Goliath. And Goliath, this massive man that by all natural rights, he sees no threat in this kid. I mean, he even says, you coming at me with sticks? I picture David moving in, at, at, toward Goliath and he's got his sling out. And he's moving at him. He's got a shepherd's staff here. And I picture him moving like this. And Goliath can't even see the, the sling there. And, and all he sees is a skinny kid coming out with sticks. And he feels completely disrespected. Do you not see who I am? I am a warrior of warriors. And you think you're going to come at me with, with sticks? And you're going to talk to me that way? And David, it's almost like he's like, ooh, look how scared I am, you know? And that giant just becomes so furious, and he runs at David. You know what I love about David? He doesn't just stand there. David runs at him, and he kills him. You know, I, one of my, uh, I guess, uh, mentor, not, not always personal oftentimes from a distance, but Mark Rutland, Dr. Mark Rutland once told a story of a time when he was in a little village of Bethany and there was this, while he was there over there in Israel, he, there was this little Arab boy there and he had one of these slings. And he said, he asked the little boy, he said, can you really use that thing? And the little boy said, I, yes, I can for one American dollar. And Dr. Rudd said, all right, pick out a target. And the boy picked out a telephone pole. It was about 40 or 50 yards away, a telephone pole. And he said, I can hit that telephone pole. And Dr. Rutland said, here's a dollar for the try. If you hit it, I'll give you another five. And that little boy, nine or 10 years old, he whipped that sling around about three times and he let it go and he hit that telephone pole at the height of about eight or nine feet from, from 40 or 50 yards away. Listen, these things, they, these slings that David had, they are lethal. This is not, you know, we're not talking about a little slingshot. We're not talking a wrist rocket, you know, that we get, you know, in, in America today. This was, a, this was a lethal weapon. He's not hitting somebody in the back of the head with spit wads here, okay? This is a lethal weapon and the giant is running at him and David calmly fits that stone in there. There's a calmness that comes when you know you're doing what God called you to do. And you don't, you, that, that's why I see the, the faith, he's operating in faith and he knows God's going to do something here. And he just calmly puts that stone in there and he, you know, whoo, whips it around about three times and he nails Goliath right there in the forehead between the eyes. And he falls down and everybody in both armies stand in stunned silence because neither side believed David was going to win. And then David draws Goliath's sword. I picture in my mind going back to the scenario I said a few weeks ago when he came back home and said, I killed a lion today. Next time cut his head off. 
And I picture him looking over at the side there. Now, Goliath's already dead because the Bible says that David killed him with nothing but a, but a sling and a stone. He's already dead. And I picture David looking over to Goliath and, Goliath and saying, all right, you want me to bring a trophy? Here we go. And he cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword, with Goliath's sword. And when he does that, that was a huge moment of empowerment for the Hebrew army. And they surged forward against the Philistine army. Now, now there's two things happening there. Uh, first, there's a message to the Philistines. You say we can't have iron weapons. If you keep us from having them, we're going to take yours and kill you with them. So it was a demoralizing moment for the Philistines. But there's another thing that took place there that, that I, I think we need to remember. There's something that happened in the hearts of the Israeli soldiers. Because I believe in that moment, because David went out there, he didn't, he didn't go out there and say, Goliath, I am so skilled with this, with this sling, you don't stand a chance, I'm going to take you out. He said, you come at me with, in the name of your gods, but I'm coming to you in the name of the God of Israel whom you have defied. Today he's going to take you out. And I think when they all heard that, when they saw this happen, the, the army of Israel realized this is a, an absolute miracle that took place in our presence today. And I think a lot of them began to realize, I could have done that. That any one of us here could have, if we had had the faith to step out and say, God will do this, that God could have used me. And in that moment they said, what have we got to fear? If God can use a skinny little shepherd boy with a stick and a, and a sling to take out the biggest, baddest soldier we've ever seen, then what have we got to be afraid of? Let's go get him, boys. And here, listen. You know, there were a lot of people telling David, you can't, you can't do this. His brother was saying, you, you're out of your mind. You can't do this. King Saul first met him and said, He's been a fighting man since his youth. You can't do this. And, and you know what? When you begin to step out, when you begin to hear from God, and you begin to do what he's called you to do, there are going to be, we talked about it some on Sundays, that there are going to be those mockers. There's going to be those scoffers. And there are going to be people that are sitting back in the wings saying, I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe they're not opposed, but they just have been afraid and they've been frozen. They've been frozen in their fear of trying to do anything for God because, because they just have, they just maybe lost track and uh, lost touch with who they are in, in Christ. And then when they see you step up and they say, that's just, that just can't happen. And then when they see God come through and something takes place, there's something that happens in the hearts of his people. Because they look at that and they say, I, I know that's not them. And if God can use them, and I know God can use me. And so, you know, when you face with a, with a giant, God gives you the courage to face that giant. But when you face that giant and you win, and you will win in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that everything is going to go the way you want it to do, but you will be victorious in Christ. When that happens, when the Lord sees you three, through, there are other people that are going to be emboldened and empowered, and they're going to step out in faith. And God... God's going to start the ball rolling and you're going to see things happen. 
But these two people, Saul and Goliath, they're huge in David's life. And David's opposition from Saul, it really defines the next segment of his life because it's all about Saul trying to kill David and David doing the right thing. And then his opposition from Goliath, it changes his whole destiny. He went from, obs from an obscure shepherd boy to that's the boy that killed the giant. He's, he's got a great future. It set his course for his life. Now listen to me, we'll, we'll, we'll close with this. You know, young people especially, we all think this, but young people tend to think that the most important thing in your life is how well you choose your friends. How many of you have ever heard, heard that? Somebody say, be careful, you gotta choose, that's true. That is true, you need to choose your friends wisely. But you know what? More important than choosing our friends wisely is choosing our enemies wisely. Whom will you oppose and to whom will you be loyal? Whom will you serve? Perhaps when you, even when you vehemently uh, disagree with them or you have lost respect for them, with whom will you stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and say, no, not this, not now, not you, this cannot stand. You've got to learn, you've got to learn where, where am I going to fight? Where am I going to choose my battles? And, and how, what do I need to be involved in? Because, you know, those that God has placed over you, your, your boss, your pastor, your teacher, whoever it is, even, even if they try pinning you to the wall with a javelin, I want you to understand this. They are not your enemy. Flee if you must. But do not trade punches with them. They're not, the, they're not the one with whom the battle is raging. God put them in their position. Let God take them down. Don't risk making an enemy of God or an enemy of the things of God. You see, the thing was about David and Saul, for example. Saul, in David's mind, was never his enemy. But in Saul's mind, David was his. And what we've got to understand in the battles that we face in life... There are going to be times when people will, will oppose you, people will, will hurt you, people will try to take you out. But we need to remember in that moment, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. No human being is your enemy. They may consider themselves your enemy, but you must not look at another human being and saying, that is my enemy. Because they are not. Because your enemy rules in the heavenly realms. Your enemy is the one that's trying to take you out spiritually. Your enemy is the one that's orchestrating it and using those people. And when we can get that in our minds, we are then be able to do what Jesus said when he said, love your enemies. Because now we look at them and we say, I have compassion on them because they don't even know how they're being manipulated by my enemy. It changes our perspective on them. So don't risk making an enemy of God or an enemy of the things of God. Don't fight against those people that God may have put into your life, which, by the way, God puts uh, difficult people in our lives for, for a purpose to help us develop our own character. Um, th th those people, I call them EGRs. You know what EGR means? Extra grace required. Anybody have any EGRs in your life? 
He puts them there because he wants us to learn how to deal with, you know, he, he is not interested in making life easy for us because he knows an easy life is not a life that is good for us. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off, off track here. On the other hand of all this stuff, be cautious about declaring war or a human being to be your enemy, but at the same time, do not fear to declare yourself at war with the satanic forces in high places. Drape yourself in faith. Use the weapons of God that he's given you, and you cannot lose. You will win, and your opposition to those satanic forces, when you're facing the battle, those moments can be the defining moment of your character. Don't worry about who is opposed to you. David, in that moment, facing Goliath, it was a defining moment for his life. And he stood in faith, and God brought the victory, and it set his course. You, you, get, where you're supposed, you get where you're supposed to be. You drape yourself in righteousness. You stand there in faith, and you, you resist. You submit yourself to God and resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. And those forces that try to oppose you can actually end up lifting you up. Isn't that what happened with Goliath? He said, I'm going to kill this kid. And instead, that moment ended up propelling him. Your opposition to satanic forces, along with your steadfast loyalty to non-enemies, may well be the refining fire of your character. Are you willing to let God be your defender in that moment? And you stand in faith. And you do what he called you to do. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you.